Welcome back to FinTech Business Podcast. I'm joined today by Jesse Silverman, General Counsel at a payments platform that automates bill payments directly from payroll. Before we get started, in the interest of full disclosure, Jesse and I used to work together. Uh, we actually crossed paths at LendUp, where I worked in marketing from 2014 to 2016. And Jesse was head regulatory counsel from 2015 to 2018. Uh, and because he is a lawyer, I also have to say the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Now, I usually don't do this, but since it's relevant to today's discussion, um, Jesse, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and career trajectory, specifically since you came from the regulatory side into the industry side. Absolutely. And I'm ecstatic to be here. And I want to point out that if anything you hear in, in this podcast is really good legal advice, I want you guys to take it. So disregard, Jade, but only the good stuff. Um So I started way back when as a state banking regulator in the state of Connecticut, although it was odd because we also did securities. So I did broker, dealer, investment advisor, as well as consumer finance, mortgage, um, money transmitters, the entire universe. So I had a broader experience. And then when... um, after the 2008 mortgage crisis, when everyone's favorite federal agency, the CFPB, was created, I moved down to D.C. in 2011 to help um, start up the CFPB, specifically in the Office of Enforcement. So um, we were down there in the early days when we were still sitting at card tables. And uh, I, I joked that I think I'm like the only person in America who got the startup bug while working for the federal government. I mean, I'm sure that frequent readers slash listeners of this podcast are probably familiar with LendUp. You know, a very quick aside for those of you who might not be, uh, the sort of premise was, you know, fixing small dollar lending by using big data and AI, gamification, financial education, etc., Uh, The company ran into some regulatory issues, I want to say, in 2016, or at least they were settled in 16, um, around a host of issues, including how some of the claims attached to the product structure and the marketing uh, were expressed. I mean, I will say that my own sort of takeaways from that experience um, have evolved over time, as I've gotten some distance and worked in some different capacities, I mean, I think particularly the experience of working at at a bank, at, at Goldman, um, which was immediately after my time at LendUp, provided quite a stark contrast and difference as far as how you know compliance um, and legal reviews were were run versus that sort of you know young small startup environment. Jesse, to the extent that you're able to talk about it, you know, what are some of the lessons that you learned from that experience? You know, would you have any, you know, advice for companies in highly regulated spaces that are getting started today about how to sort of, you know, avoid some of the pitfalls that that uh, you and I went through? I I have so many thoughts on this. We could spend the next day talking about this question alone, but I, I think. The biggest takeaway is fintech is hard. If fintech is very hard, 
you're essentially trying to cram totally new technology into regulations that were created before people had a personal computer in their house. So, you know, some of the things, they're just black and white. But honestly, you know, there's so many examples. The FCRA. The FCRA contemplates a world where um, data is being transferred outside of the consumer's knowledge and awareness and being used in ways that he or she doesn't contemplate. Now, contrast that with PLAT, which is consumer provision, right? The entire nature of consumer data and how it's used has changed completely. But guess what? The FCRA hasn't changed completely. So in your in fintech, you're constantly trying to figure out, okay, how do I take this new environment and cram it into laws that frankly don't make any sense? Um, that is my biggest takeaway from Lenda. But I, I will also add, if you are, this is probably the most important reminder I have for anyone in fintech. If you are starting a fintech company and you do not have a lawyer on staff, and I don't mean outside counsel, you could have the best outside counsel that exists, but he or she is only answering the questions that you bring them. It's the questions that you don't bring them that are going to kill you. Opening a fintech without a lawyer on staff early days is akin to opening a hospital without a doctor. Like, it's just, you can't operate in fintech without focusing on the regulations. Yeah, I mean, I think that a misperception uh, that particularly first-time founders or founders who are not from financial services might have is that compliance, uh, legal review lawyers are a cost center. And I do, some of the some of the mentality around that I think is perhaps changing, you know, particularly as we've seen, you know, a whole ecosystem blow up in crypto, um, but also in, you know, a lot of the companies uh, that really quickly entered the market through the use of banking as a service platforms, where, you know, maybe they were expecting that some uh, adult somewhere else, you know, at the BAS platform or at the underlying bank would sort of be the guardrails. You know, and, and I would argue that at least so far, that just hasn't been the case. I mean, the number of companies we've seen, uh, I'll pick on on my favorite one, which is Zelf. It's like, well, clearly like this launched live in market and, and no one at the platform and no one at the underlying bank, you know, caught it and stopped it before it was, you know, live on product hunt. I still haven't gotten my $5 back, by the way. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, it's how do you move the idea from being, you know, oh, compliance and lawyers like ruin everything, they're anti-innovation, you know, it's expensive to, no, if you don't have this, you're shooting yourself maybe in the foot, maybe in the heart. So Bass is another fascinating and fantastic topic. And you can see it changing by the day. So to some extent, I feel bad for the people involved in BAS because the regulatory guidance that's out there, the FFIEC, the OCC, it is very not prescriptive. 
It's very generic. It's, you know, risk-based, et cetera, which there's lots of guidance like that. But there is nothing specific out there to say, these are the concrete expectations I have as a regulator. So in the absence of that clear guidance, you can see the BAS providers taking an entire range of approaches. And I mean, I've seen it on my side. I've seen great BAS providers who genuinely understand the regulations. They've built systems around those, those regulations. And I've seen others that just don't. And, and the same is true with the underlying banks, right? Banks are getting squeezed everywhere. You know, as the boomer generation retires and people stop going into banks, bank branches are closing, they're getting squeezed left and right. So they're trying to find solutions just to stay alive. And some of them have chosen to partner with these BAS providers and they don't have the they don't understand the technology and they don't have the staff in order to do good regulatory approvals. I mean, I, I just say one last thing, which is I think of I think of myself as a fintech. When I'm partnering with a bank, a sponsor bank, I'm an extension of that bank because these consumers coming in, they are depositors in that bank. They are that bank's customers. So if I am that sponsor bank, I would expect that that fintech that I'm partnered with, it's essentially an extension of me and my business. And I've seen some banks that treat it that way, and I've seen some that don't. But to me, it, it is a mistake to not treat them as if they were just another division of your bank. Yeah, I mean, it. it's interesting the sort of wide um, continuum of how certain platforms and certain underlying bank partners have, have treated that interaction with the sort of consumer-facing fintech. I mean, what I see has happened is sort of this uh, sorting where you have certain bank partners that maybe said no to you know ninety percent of the fintechs who knocked on their door, and were you know more selective as far as that. What kinds of programs were they willing to work with? What kind of due diligence did they do upfront, etc. And you had certain banks, you know, and or platforms that were much more permissive. And so you you sort of get this uh, separation of like, you know, not that I think whatever Bank Corp has done everything perfectly, but maybe they're like, we're not going to work with the platforms, you know, we're going to have tighter criteria about what fintechs we will work with. And then you've had other players that were, you know, saw sort of like dollar signs in their eyes and it's about scale. And so it's like, okay, we'll say yes to everybody. Um, and then like, lo and behold, you know, you get sort of the uh, bottom of the barrel or like the riskiest looking all sort of concentrated in the same platform or a couple of platforms in the same, you know, handful of banks uh, perhaps. And that, you know, eventually... Uh, attracted attention for some of the activities that that some of these companies were doing. I mean, Blue Ridge being the the obvious example. I mean, what you're saying as far as you know, no clear guidelines. 
it's funny, this came up in a conversation uh, I was having with the guys from Lithic recently. Um, and I actually had to Google uh, the bank services company act, uh, which, <laughs> which frankly is like not something I'm sure I'd ever heard of as far as trying to understand, you know, to your point, regulation, legislation that hasn't been updated in, in you know, decades. How, you know, how do regulators think about non-bank technology providers like FIS, like Jack Henry, you know, maybe networks like Visa, MasterCard, et cetera. And I was like, re- and I was like, re- one of these, um, you know, legislative summaries of the Bank Services Company Act. And it's talking about like providers that do, you know, check sorting, uh, preparing and mailing statements, yeah. in, you know, interest calculations, all of which logically, yes, if you're a bank and you're having someone else do that stuff for you, if you're having whatever, Jack Henry's core do it for you, you want to make sure that's right. And you can see why there would be perhaps some defined direct regulatory oversight of that player. But as far as I'm aware, nothing like that exists for Bass or for open banking players of so Plaid, Finicity, MX, etc. And, and frankly, I mean, not that this is you know a political podcast, but given you know where the legislative branch is and has been, it doesn't seem like that's something that you're going to see new new laws or new tools develop around. And so it feels like regulators, whether it's the CFPB, you know that that you worked at, or the OCC or the Fed or FDIC or whatever, you know, they kind of have like the tools that are at their disposal. And it feels like they need to try to use those to solve the problems that are facing today that probably look very different than the problems, you know, when when FICRA was written in 1970, whatever. Right. So there's several issues floating around in there. And let's start with what to me is the number one. Those regulators fundamentally don't understand how many of these products and services work. They fundamentally don't understand many aspects of banking as a service. And I can say that because as I was a regulator for, I don't know, 15, 17 years, whatever it was, I can tell you when I was on the other side of the table, I absolutely believed that I knew how it worked. I had the luxury of time to get that. Like if there was a particular issue, I could take a month to go down into the weeds on that issue. There was no company saying, please hurry up and sue me faster, right? So I had the luxury of time. I also had the luxury of, hey, John, you wrote this particular regulation for uh, you know the Department of Treasury. Can you tell me what this thing means? And he would say, sure, this is what it meant. It was a luxury. But the bottom line was, until I went to the other side and I saw the raw amount of ambiguity, I couldn't understand it. And I definitely couldn't understand the real nitty gritty of how the actual services worked. So I think that's what we're seeing now with banking as a service. We have lots of very smart, very dedicated people at the OCC, the FDIC, the FFIEC. They're very smart, but they just simply can't know 
how the business works. Then you have the secondary problem of there's inherently mistrust between the industry and the regulator. And I can say this because this was me. I would talk to someone in the industry. They would explain what was happening. And I listened to every one of those conversations with an extremely cynical ear saying, oh, okay, that's that's what you want me to believe about your product or service. And I got to tell you, I came across several people who were obviously lying to me about what their product or service or did. And then I came across seven who, in hindsight, obviously weren't. It's really hard as a regulator to split the difference and figure out who in there should I trust about how these products and services should work and who can I not trust. So that's sort of the root cause of this lack of of understanding. Yeah, and I mean, not to be uh, also perhaps cynical um, and, <laughs> and give the regulators the benefit of the doubt, it, it doesn't feel like that is likely to change, not for lack of effort, but if anything, the pace of change and the amount of complexity seem to only be increasing. I mean, I, I hate to be playing uh, like buzzword and trend bingo, um, <laughs> but with the growth of, you know, AI, generative AI, chatbots, et cetera. I saw <clears throat> recently that apparently Chime is now a generative AI company or something. Uh, and you have to be a little sympathetic that like, okay, if your job, particularly if, if your entire career is in, you know, in uh, a regulatory agency, like, yes, you can talk to people and learn and read, et cetera, but it's just, fundamentally not the same thing as having you know worked in the field i mean even me you know the more years between you know hands-on tactical roles uh that pass i realize like okay again it's one thing for me to read about it and talk to people it's another thing to actually you know do the job um i do wanna... i think regulators are always going to be behind right i think about it it's like a boat and a wake the boat is progress and technology. The wake is everything that comes behind it. But even let's just take our work at Lenda. I think back to our work at Lenda. We built almost everything, like just bespoke everything. If we were to start Lenda today, there would be scores of products and services mm -hmm. off the shelf. Those products and services have been tested for several years now. They largely, you know, by and large, they work. Lots of the mistakes that we made, we you wouldn't make today. So, like, progress has caught up on there. But again, to your point, there's AI, there's generative AI. Like, it's always moving forward, but the regulators do catch up. They're just always going to be behind because – it simply moves too fast for any one organization to keep up with all of it. I mean, speaking of being behind and, and trying to catch up, you know, as an outside observer, uh, one of the things I found a little uh, frustrating is like the CFPB's current pace. I mean, we're... <laughs> you and me <laughs> both. Yeah. We're about halfway through the current administration and like, okay, like there have been some wins over draft fees, 
Uh, but it feels like the speed, both on the rulemaking side as well as on the enforcement side, has been pretty glacial, um, particularly in light of the pending Supreme Court case that potentially could gut the agency's funding. I don't particularly think it's going to uh, do away with the CFPB altogether, but who knows? We've got a real interesting uh, Supreme Court these days. Um, based on your experience you know, at the Bureau and now in private industry and what you've observed, like, what do you think is going on here? Do you think that's something that's going to change, you know, in the next whatever two-ish years of uh, the current administration? I'm pausing because that's such a chat. I, I yeah. again, <laughs> you picked another, another subject that I have so many thoughts on. So let me first say, I agree with your um, with your description of a glacial pace, I, I think I think it is objectively true. Now you know when when Rohit started at the CFPB, obviously you're looking at a backlog. You know, for him to leave his imprint on the agency and really drive change, it doesn't happen overnight, right? So these investigations, the good ones at least. They take time. They take a year. They take two years. So I was certainly willing to overlook that first year or not overlook. I I wasn't expecting much of that first year to be his particular impact. So if it was slow, I would attribute that to prior administrations. Um, but we're now getting to the point where we should be seeing more, more of his impact. I would say... Overall, the, the, the ultimate story is yet to be written. There is still plenty of time for him to leave his mark. I will say that I'm very surprised at the lack of enforcement in particular. It's been surprising. Rohit seems more focused on, uh, on frankly, on the bully pulpit, you know, press releases. Personally, I think that He's been too focused on it. I think after a while, they start to lose their impact. You know, when every week there's a new wild announcement, it just starts to lose its impact. And at some point, there has to be an action following the statement or people will stop paying attention. Yeah, I, I also wonder, particularly given his background at the FTC, Sometimes it feels like he's trying to play big tech antitrust regulator more than, you know, uh, consumer financial protection regulator. And like, yes, you know, should Apple, Google, Amazon, etc. receive a certain amount, perhaps even elevated scrutiny as they sort of push into different areas of financial services? That's Okay, that's probably fair. But I mean, I think one could even make it counter. Uh, before you wait, before you jump off that, yeah. I think it's interesting because I, I wasn't it you who wrote about the Apple App Store and the apps that were that were on there. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Don't even get me started. Um, yes, it is me uh, in the sense that like the App Store, both Apple and Google is like uh, you know a major distribution point for any basically any kind of financial service at this point and it's a little crazy that one you know both of the both of them apple and google distribute apps 
in like obvious violation of their own their own policies make no sense, right? You can actually say that a BNPL app, which has repayment in less than 60 days, violates their policies, but it's in the store. Or, right. you know, apps that have, you know, some uh triple digit equivalent interest rate, uh, but stated as a tip or an expedited funding fee. You know, shouldn't be in there, whatever. So the, the policy of the stores make no sense. They're not enforced in any way that is internally consistent or consistent with the law. Um, so yes, that was me. Well, so I happen to agree with you. I agree that there's a there there. I don't know exactly what it is. Um, I agree that Apple is holding itself out as providing this customer service, customer safety with their app store. And I'm not sure that they're meeting those statements they're making to the consumers. So I find it interesting that there is there is a there there, but the CFPB is not not following it. So I so to your points about um, Rohit appearing to be interested in big tech, antitrust, etc. There are a couple paths in to really dig into that that I think are legitimately worthy of some investigative resources. And again, I, I haven't seen any disclosures from Apple saying that it's happening. You know, we wouldn't hear it from the CFPB itself, but I find it surprising that where there are these avenues in, they don't seem to be taking it. Yeah, it, it It's interesting to try to reconcile the perceived animus towards big tech with another stated objective, which is fostering competition. You can't hate the big banks and big tech and be pro-competition. Like at some point, those two things don't live together. Yeah, as much as, and this is, you know, where I get a little frustrated watching some elements of like the Democratic establishment, and and I'm thinking specifically of Sherrod Brown on the Banking Committee. It's like, well, you want competition, but your preferred way to get that seems to be turning back the clock to preserve like the bank as it existed and it's a wonderful life. And some notion of like personal banking or the word relationship banking started popping up in a lot of statements. Um, you know, in the last well, maybe remember six my months. earlier my earlier comments about banks getting squeezed, boomers just leaving the leaving boomers are passing on, and with them lots of those small banks. But guess what? You know who's a major donor in every one of those small markets? Every one of the largest donors in all those small markets. It is the small local bank and it's the small local realtor. Those two industries have outsized political impact. So it's going to get more interesting rather than less as these smaller banks get squeezed by market preference, but they still have the political capital. I mean, it'll certainly be interesting to watch that unfold, both from like a political perspective as well as regulatory perspective. Um, I mean, speaking of legislators and regulators, um, <laughs> you know, one of their favorite talking points, uh, really on both sides of the aisle, 
is about increasing, you know, access and inclusion. And, you know, this is also actually really everyone loves to use these talking points, whether it's fintech uh, or crypto. I remember crypto is supposed to democratize wealth building or something. Um, To to what extent? That's my favorite claim. Um, no, I, I'm also chuckling because I was uh, just uh, Googling before this and noticing that the yield on uh, crypto DeFi is now like half what you can get just like leaving your money in a regular bank savings account. <laughs> um, I digress. You know, t- to what extent do you think that fintech has actually helped progress this sort of notion of access and inclusion, you know, and or to what extent do you think regulation has helped progress that goal? I I, I mean, I would say on the margins, I'll put it this way. I'll start by saying the claims that I hear from your average routine fintech are comical. They're farcical. Yes, we're democratizing access. We're expanding access. 92% of them are doing absolutely nothing of the sort. And a good chunk of those, you can't even rationally claim it. But there is very much, I mean, I always think back to that show, Silicon Valley, where they're at one of the like um, competitions and everyone gets on the stage and says, we're changing the world by, you know, insert the blank. I I have to say, if we want to talk about my lend-up days, of all the things that shocked me when I got to lend-up, being an East Coaster, being a government regulator, was the amount of nonsense that people in Silicon Valley will believe about what they're doing for the world. Uh, It is... Forever and a day, and it still exists today, and it makes me laugh. So, on balance, do I think that they're democratizing access? The answer is no. Now, that being said, there have been scores of real material improvements. But the bottom line is when we're talking about that bottom demographic, you know, the people who cannot get a sub a sub thirty six percent loan, there's only so much that financial services or fintech can do. They simply don't make enough money, right? Consumer education isn't gonna solve that problem. More efficient payment processing isn't gonna solve that problem. But again, I also say, just because we can't help everybody doesn't mean that we can't help anybody. So I, I, I like to think that there have been definite strides made do they match the the statements and the claims of most of fintech? Absolutely, indisputably not. But there are there is a lot of good. Like I, I don't think fintech as a category is a bad thing. I think it's a fantastic thing. Um, even the cynicism that you hear from me, I'm still wildly supportive. It's just we're not saving the world. We're making it better on the margins for lots of people, but we're not. We're not saving the world. I mean, the reality that I came to, and it sounds very consistent with your point of view, is the real problem. And I'm speaking specifically to the U.S. market. You could make some other arguments in in developing countries. Is 
you know, the cost of healthcare, education, and housing has increased very significantly, you know, over the course of decades, and real wages have not kept pace. And yes, can you do some things on the margin with fintech to, you know, solve bits and pieces? Yes, but the fundamental problem is, you know, people don't make enough money. When I need to point to something where I'm like, this is something that is improving on the margin, you know, I, apparently I have a reputation for giving, you know, neobanks like Vero a hard time. But I do think that that is an example of a category that from a consumer perspective is better. If you were poor and at Chase or Wells Fargo and getting min balance, NSF and overdraft fee, and you left and you went to Chime or Vero, and you mostly don't have any fees, maybe ATM or something, that's that's an improvement. Now, is it a viable business model? Probably not, but we'll, <laughs> you know, we'll find out. Also, I mean, industry close to to you know where you and I have come from, uh, earned wage access. Like, okay, payday loan average fifteen dollars per hundred borrowed. You know, EWA. Like, yes, you're just pulling that person's income forward, but if they're paying one or two dollars instead of fifteen. Like that is a small but real intangible, and particularly for that user, a meaningful savings versus if they did go to that corner payday store. Now, what I always point out to the EWA people is that only works if you have a job. Uh, yep. A lot of payday borrowers are on Social Security, disability, some kind of benefits, etc. So again, it's not going to fix everything for everybody, but there is opportunity to improve on the margins. I 100% agree. And in fact, I'll even go a hair farther, especially with respect to the neobanks. Hey, I agree about the sustainability of the business model, very TBD. However, that is, they have played a material role in driving even the large banks away from overdraft fees. That is a absolute material benefit for the average consumer. And I also totally agree with EWA. When done well, it is a benefit. Is it changing people's lives? No, it's not. But it is definitely a market improvement. So we continue, you know, we, I say we, FinTech continues to make small, important, incremental steps. So I think it is a very positive force in general. It is not saving the world. All right, I have I think time for one last really easy, really short. Make it a good one. Question. Um, you know, I think saying that the US legal regulatory landscape when it comes to financial services is complicated um <laughs> would probably be a pretty severe understatement. I mean, particularly now that I've had the chance to live and work in multiple countries, uh, a lot of countries have like a single banking regulator, whereas depending on how you count, the U.S. has what, at least like five federal regulators, if not more, plus an overlapping state licensing regulatory system, plus securities, commodities, insurance, et cetera. Now, um, throw, now throw privacy in that mix. Uh, and state privacy, yes. Uh, um, if you were, had to pick like one aspect of banking slash financial services regulations, like whatever, bank chartering or consumer mm. protection, credit, whatever, and approach it from a blank slate. Like what is something you would do fundamentally differently 
than the Byzantine system that that we are stuck with? So I think the best, I'll I'll reframe that and I'm going to answer the question the way I want to. So I will say the best thing that I have seen in the U.S. regulatory regime in the last, say, 20 years, which I think could be a model for how to go forward, was in the mortgage markets. Basically, the feds came out and said, you know, the Congress came out and they established a national mortgage licensing requirements, right? And they basically said, here is the absolute floor for what must be regulated. If you state would like to go higher, you're free to go higher. If you don't want to do anything, we, the Fed, will step in and take over the role as the mortgage regulator in your state. But the important thing that they did, they still left the state's there to enforce. That to me is the optimum outcome for virtually every regulation. We have a national floor and then the states are there because I gotta tell you, being a federal regulator and a state regulator, the world is so totally different. The the state regulators, they're far more responsive to an individual. They're like retail investigators, right? I'm John Q. Public, and I my bank has mistakenly charged me and won't return my money. If I go to the feds with that, the CFPB, the OC, anyone, the FDIC, they're doing nothing. Maybe after the 4,000th complaint, they'll go in there and they'll do something. Your state banking regulator, they're going right in on day one. They're like, hey, my constituent, John Q. Public, has made this allegation. Can you provide me the evidence of that? So they're just far more responsive to the average public. And honestly, they have lots of fantastic experience on the sort of day-to-day retail transaction of financial services that the big regulate the federal regulators don't just don't have. So to me, optimum future is we have a federal standard and the states are left to enforce. Uh, I like that. So, uh, any any legislators listening, let's uh, let's get on that. Jesse, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. For anyone that might want to follow you or get in touch, what is the best place to find you? You can find me over at Highline. I'm over there, General Counsel, Chief Compliance Officer Jesse at Highline.co. Anytime you'd like to reach out, I'm there for you. All right, got your plug in, Jesse. Hopefully, we will cross paths <laughs> again soon. I suspect that we will. I'm going to I'm I'm going to beg to be back on the show. All right. Until then. Thanks, Jason.